Hello, and welcome to the Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout. Each week we explore classic sci-fi from the atomic age and beyond. I'm your host, Brad Grahowski, the voice of Brad.com. Today we bring you Of All Possible Worlds, Part 2, by William Tenn, originally published in Galaxy Science Fiction, December 1956, narrated today by Brad Grahowski. Let's begin. Of All Possible Worlds, Part 2 So long, Hugo. So long, Bob. He twisted around, reached overhead for the lever which activated the forces that drove the time machine. Flick! It was strange, Max Albin reflected, that this time travel business, which knocked unconscious everyone who tried it, only made him feel slightly dizzy. That was because he was descended from Giovanni Albani, he had been told. There must be some complicated scientific explanation for it, he decided, and that would make it none of his business. Better forget about it. All around the time machine, there was a heavy gray murk in which objects were hinted at rather than stated definitely. It reminded him of patrolling his beat at the North American Chicken Reservation in a thick fog. According to his gauges, he was now in 1976. He cut speed until he hit the last day of April, then cut speed again, drifting slowly backward to the 18th, the day of the infamous guided missile experiment. Carefully, carefully, like a man handling a strange bomb made on a strange planet, he watched the center gauge until the needle came to rest against the thick etched line that indicated the exactly crucial moment. Then he pulled the brake and stopped the machine dead. All he had to do now was materialize in the right spot, flash out, and pull the red switch toward him. Then his well-paid assignment would be done. But he stopped and scratched his dirt-matted hair. Wasn't there something he was supposed to do a second before materialization? Yes, that useless old windbag Sada had given him a last instruction. He picked up the sealed metal cylinder, walked to the entrance of the time machine and tossed it into the gray murk. A solid object floating near the entrance caught his eye. He put his arm out. Ooh, it was cold, and pulled it inside. A small metal box. <laughs> Funny, what was it doing out there? Curiously, he opened it, hoping to find something valuable. Nothing but a few sheets of paper, Albin noted disappointedly. He began to read them slowly, very slowly, for the manuscript was full of a lot of long and complicated words, like a letter from one bookworm scientist to another. The problems all began with a guided missile experiment in 1976, he read. There had been a number of such experiments, but it was the one of 1976 that finally did the damage the biologists had been warning about. The missile, with its deadly warhead, exploded in the Pacific Ocean as planned. The physicists and military men went home to study their notes, and the world shivered once more over the approaching war and tried to forget about it. But there was fallout, a radioactive rain several hundred miles to the north, and a small fishing fleet got thoroughly soaked by it. Fortunately, the radioactivity in the rain was sufficiently low to do little obvious physical damage. 
All it did was cause a mutation in the mumps virus that several of the men in the fleet were incubating at the time, having caught it from the children of the fishing town, among whom a minor epidemic was raging. The fleet returned to its hometown, which promptly came down with a new kind of mumps. Dr. Llewellyn Shapiro, the only physician in town, was the first man to note that, while the symptoms of the disease were substantially milder than those of its unmutated parent, practically no one was immune to it, and its effects on human reproductivity were truly terrible. Most people were completely sterilized by it. The rest were rendered much less capable of fathering or bearing offspring. Shapiro's mumps spread over the entire planet in the next few decades. It leaped across every quarantine erected. For a long time, it successfully defied all the vaccines and serums attempted against it. Then, when a vaccine was finally perfected, humanity discovered to its dismay that its generative powers had been permanently and fundamentally impaired. Something had happened to the germplasm. A large percentage of individuals were born sterile, and of those who were not, one child was usually the most that could be expected, a two-child parent being quite rare and a three-child parent almost unknown. Strict eugenic control was instituted by the Security Council of the United Nations so that fertile men and women would not be wasted upon non-fertile mates. Fertility was the most important avenue to social status, and right after it, came successful genetic research. Genetic research had the very best minds prodded into it. The lesser ones went into the other sciences. Everyone on Earth was engaged in some form of scientific research to some extent. Since the population was now so limited in proportion to the great resources available, all physical labor had long been done by robots. The government saw to it that everybody had an ample supply of goods and, in return, asked only that they experiment without any risk to their own lives. Every human being was now a much-prized, highly-guarded rarity. There were less than a hundred thousand of them, well below the danger point, it had been estimated, where a species might be wiped out by a new calamity. Not that another calamity would be needed. Since the end of the epidemic, the birth rate had been moving further and further behind the death rate. In another century... Well, that was why a desperate and secret attempt to alter the past was being made. This kind of world was evidently impossible. Max Albin finished the manuscript and sighed. What a wonderful world! What a comfortable place to live! He walked to the rear dials and began the process of materializing at the crucial moment on April 18, 1976. Flick! It was odd, Mac Albin reflected, that these temporal journeys, which induced coma in everyone who tried it, only made him feel slightly dizzy. That was because he was descended from Giovanni Albani, he knew. Maybe there was some genetic relationship with his above-average fertility. Might be a good idea to mention the idea to a biologist or two when he returned. If he returned. All around the time machine, there was a soupy, gray murk in which objects were hinted at rather than stated definitely. It reminded him of the problems of landing a helicopter in a thick fog when the robot butler had not been told to turn on the ground lights. According to the insulated register, he was now in 1976. He lowered speed until he registered April, then maneuvered slowly backward through time to the 18th, the day of the infamous guided missile experiment. Carefully. 
carefully, like an obstetrician supervising surgical robots at an unusually difficult birth. He watched the register until it rolled to rest against the notch that indicated the exactly crucial moment. Then he pushed a button and froze the machine where it was. All he had to do now was materialize in the right spot, flash out and push the red switch from him. Then his exciting adventure would be over. But he paused and tapped at his sleek chin. He was supposed to do something a second before materialization. Ah, yes, that nervous theoretician, Bob Skeet, had given him a last suggestion. He picked up the small metal box, twisted around to face the opening of the time machine, and dropped it into the gray murk. A solid object floating near the opening attracted his attention. He shot his arm out. It was cold, as cold as they had figured, and pulled the object inside. A sealed metal cylinder. Strange. What was it doing out there? Anxiously, he opened it, not daring to believe he'd find a document inside. Yes, that was exactly what it was, he saw excitedly. He began to read it rapidly, very rapidly, as if it were a newly published paper on neutrinos. Besides, the manuscript was written with almost painful simplicity, like a textbook composed by a stuffy pedagogue for the use of morons. The problems all began with a guided missile experiment of 1976, he read. There had been a number of such experiments, but it was the one of 1976 that finally did the damage the biologists had been warning about. The missile, with its deadly warhead, exploded in the Brazilian jungle through some absolutely unforgivable error in the remote control station. The officer in charge of the station was reprimanded, and the men under him court-martialed, and the Brazilian government was paid a handsome compensation for the damage. But there had been more damage than anyone knew at the time. A plant virus, similar to the tobacco mosaic, had mutated under the impact of radioactivity. Five years later, had burst out of the jungle and completely wiped out every last rice plant on Earth. Japan and a large part of Asia became semi-deserts inhabited by a few struggling nomads. Then the virus adjusted to wheat and corn, and famine howled in every street of the planet. All attempts by botanists to control the blight failed because of the swiftness of its onslaught, and after it had fed, it hit again at a new plant and another, and another. Most of the world's non-human mammals had been slaughtered for food long before they could starve to death. Many insects, too, before they became extinct at the loss of their edible plants, served to assuage hunger to some small extent. But the nutritive potential of Earth was steadily diminishing in a horrifying geometric progression. Recently, it had been observed plankton, the tiny organism on which most of the sea's ecology was based had started to disappear, and with its diminution, dead fish had begun to pile up on the beaches. Mankind had lunged out desperately in all directions in an effort to survive, but nothing had worked for any length of time. Even the other planets of the solar system, which had been reached and explored at a tremendous cost in remaining resources, had yielded no edible vegetation. Synthetics had failed to fill the prodigious gap. In the midst of the sharply increasing hunger, social controls had pretty much dissolved. Pathetic attempts at rationing still continued, 
but black markets became the only markets, and black marketeers the barons of life. Starvation took the hindmost, and only the most agile economically lived in comparative comfort. Law and order were had only by those who could afford to pay for them, and children of impoverished families were sold on the open market for a bit of food. But the blight was still adjusting to new plants, and the food supply kept shrinking. In another century. That was why the planet's powerful individuals had been persuaded to pool their wealth in a desperate attempt to alter the past. This kind of world is manifestly impossible. Mac Albin finished the document inside. What a magnificent world! What an exciting place to live! He dropped his hand on the side levers and began the process of materializing at the crucial moment on April 18, 1976. Flick! As the equipment of the remote control station began to take on a blurred reality all around him, Max Albin felt a bit of fear at what he was doing. The technicians, he remembered, the secretary general, even the black market kings had all warned him not to go ahead with his instructions if anything unusual turned up. That was a lot of power to disobey. He knew he should return with his new information and let better minds work on it. They, with their easy lives, what did they know what existence had been like for such as he? Hunger. Always hunger. Scrabbling. Servility and more hunger. Every time things got really tight, you and your wife looking sideways at your kids and wondering which of them would bring the best price. Buying security for them, as he was now, at the risk of his life. But in this other world, this other 2089, there was a state that took care of you and that treasured your children. A man like himself, with five children? Why, he'd be a big man, maybe the biggest man on earth, and he'd have robots to work for him and lots of food. Above all, lots and lots of food. He'd even be a scientist. Everyone was a scientist there, weren't they? And he'd have a big laboratory all to himself. This other world had its troubles, but it was a lot nicer place than where he'd come from. He wouldn't return. He'd go through with it. The fear left him, and for the first time in his life, Max Albin felt the sensation of power. He materialized the time machine around the green instrument panel, sweating a bit at the sight of the roomful of military figures, despite the technician's reassurances that all this would be happening too fast to be visible. He saw the single red switch pointing upward on the instrument panel, the switch that controlled the course of the missile. Now, now to make a halfway decent world, Max Albin pushed the little red switch toward him. Flick! As the equipment of the remote control station began to oscillate into reality all around him, Mac Albin felt a bit of shame at what he was doing. He promised Bob and Hugo to drop the experiment at any stage if a new factor showed up. He knew he should go back with this new information and have all three of them kick it around. But what would they be able to tell him? They, with their blissful adjustment to their thoroughly blueprinted lives. They, at least, had been ordered to marry women they could live with. He'd drawn a female with whom he was completely incompatible in any but a genetic sense. Genetics. He was tired of genetics and the sanctity of human life. 
tired to the tip of his uncalloused fingers, tired to the recesses of his unused muscles. He was tired of having to undertake a simple adventure like a thief in the night. But in this other world, this other 2089, someone like himself would be a monarch of the black market, a Suzerian of chaos, making his own rules, taking his own women. So what if the weaklings, those unfit to carry on the race, went to the wall? His kind wouldn't. He'd formed a pretty good idea of the kind of men who ruled that other world, from the document in the sealed metal cylinder. The black marketeers had not even read it. Why, the fools had obviously been duped by the technicians into permitting the experiment. They had not grasped the idea that an alternate time track would mean their own non-existence. This other world had its troubles, but it was certainly a livelier place than where he'd come from. It deserved a chance. Yes, that's how he felt. This world was drowsily moribund. This alternate was starving but managing to flail away at destiny. It deserved a chance. Albin decided that he was experiencing renunciation and felt proud. He materialized the time machine around the green instrument panel, disregarding the roomful of military figures since he knew they could not see him. The single red switch pointed downward on the instrument panel. That was the gimmick that controlled the course of the missile. Now, now to make a halfway interesting world. Mac Elbin pushed the little red switch from him. Flick! Now! Now, to make a halfway decent world, Max Albin pulled the little red switch toward him. Flick. Now, now, to make a halfway interesting world, Mac Albin pushed the little red switch from him. Flick. Pulled the little switch toward him. Flick. Pushed the little red switch from him. Flick. Toward him. Flick. From him. We hope you've enjoyed Of All Possible Worlds, written by William Ten, narrated by Brad Grahowski. For more information about Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, visit thevoiceofbrad.com spaceman. If you are enjoying Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. The Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout is written, produced, edited, and performed by Brad Grahowski. We leave you with a moment of our next story. Thank you, and journey well among the stars.